the story of psychology based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore with your host, Professor Todd. Part one, the ancients, Epicureans and Stoics. Cynicism. After Plato and Aristotle, the concerns of the philosophers moved further and further from metaphysics, epistemology, and anything resembling modern science to the issue that had always concerned the ancient Greeks the most ethics. What is it to be virtuous, to have character, to live the good life, to have arete or nobility? The philosopher Antisthenes, 445-365 BC, was the son of an Athenian citizen and a Thracian slave girl. After starting his own school, he came to recognize that Socrates was wiser than he. He went over, students and all, to learn from the master. Antisthenes is the founder of cynicism. The word cynic comes from a Greek word for dog originally because Antisthenes taught at the Cynosargus, or Dogfish, Gymnasium, which had been set up for the poor of Athens. Cynicism involves living the simple life in order that the soul can be set free. It is a back-to-nature type of philosophy, a la St. Francis of Assisi or the Hindu ascetics. By eliminating one's needs and possessions, one can better concentrate on the life of philosophy. Cynicism makes virtue the only good, the only true happiness. You can't control the world. You can't control life's ups and downs. So, control the only thing that you can control. Control yourself. Inhibit your desires. Become independent of the world. I would rather go mad than feel pleasure, said Antisthenes. Rejecting civilization, the cynics tended to withdraw from society, even to live in the desert. And so in this, they may have influenced the Jewish Essenes and early Christian monastics. Cynicism, however, was not entirely negative, at least from today's perspective. They strongly encouraged individualism, believing that all men were brothers. They were against war and against slavery, and they believed in free speech. They also believed in the legitimacy of suicide and, oddly enough, in free love. The most famous of the cynics was Diogenes, 412 to 323 BC, a student of Antisthenes. He saw himself as a citizen of the world, or a cosmopolitan. Yet, for a time, he lived in a discarded clay jar. There's a famous story that has Alexander the Great finding him sleeping in the sun and announcing, I am Alexander the Great King. And Diogenes replied, 
I am Diogenes, the dog. Alexander asked him if there is anything that he could do for him. Diogenes just asked him to move out of the sun. Hedonism. Aristippus, 435 to 355 BC, was also a student of Socrates. Originally from Cyrene on the north coast of Africa, Aristippus returned there to found his own school, where he taught the philosophy of hedonism. Hedonism is derived from the Greek word for pleasure. Now, hedonism is very simple. Whatever we do, we do to gain pleasure and to avoid pain. Pleasure is the only good, and the achievement of pleasure is the only virtue. Therefore, morality is a matter of culture, custom, and laws. What we consider moral in our culture may be thought of differently in a different culture. What we consider immoral may be thought of as perfectly acceptable in another culture. So, for instance, if I were to suggest to you that after your beloved pet dog passes away, that we need to stir-fry the little guy and serve him for dinner. Now, is that immoral? You may find it reprehensible. You may rebel against that idea, but by what standard do you say that it is immoral? Is it hurting anyone? And how could you condemn another culture if they thought that it was moral? Now, this idea is something we would now call ethical relativism. Furthering the idea, science, art, civilization in general, are good only to the extent that they are useful in producing pleasure, so that art is only valuable if it is art worth looking at, if you derive pleasure from viewing it. The same with science, the same with government. But note, however, that Aristippus also taught that some pleasures are higher than others, and we should be slaves to none of them. Therefore, Aristippus was equally cheerful in good times and in poverty, and he despised useless displays of wealth. It did no good to anyone for you to have more money than you needed, To simply acquire and hoard wealth when it was giving you no additional pleasure and others were suffering at the same time. Because the hoarding of wealth brings no additional pleasure to the one who has the wealth and may cause additional pain for those who are lacking, then the hoarding of wealth would be immoral, according to hedonism. Aristippus and his students lived as part of a commune-like school where they all practiced what they preached, including free love, more than 2,000 years before Woodstock. At this school, women were the full equals of men, and not just hypothetically. Aristippus's daughter, Arete, succeeded him in the leadership of the school and the commune. She wrote 40 books herself and was honored by the city of Cyrene with the title Light of Hellas. Now, a quick digression. The word Hellas is Greek for Greece. 
In other words, the word Greek and Greece are Roman terms for who we call the Greeks. But the Greeks called themselves Hellenes. Their philosophy was Hellenistic, and Hellas was their homeland. Skepticism Skepticism today is usually considered a positive thing. The idea of not accepting anything on faith alone could be a motto for any number of famous philosophers. In its origin, however, skepticism was a bit more extreme. Pyrrho of Elis, 365-275 BC, is usually credited with founding the school of skepticism. Now, it's believed that Pyrrho traveled to India and studied with the gymnosophists. Now, the word gymnasium or gymnasium typically refers to a school. Now, you may think of the gymnasium as the place at the elementary school where you go to play basketball or you stay inside for recess when it's raining outside. But the gymnasium really referred to the entire school of thinking. But, unlike your elementary school, there was a twist. Very commonly in the gymnasium, there was a great deal of nudity. For instance, Greek wrestling was undertaken by two young men wrestling each other naked. Well, the name gymnosophists is given to the group in India who would be the naked lovers of wisdom. So, from that point, Pyrrho brought back the idea that nothing can be known for certain, that the senses are easily fooled, and reason follows too easily our own desires. Many times people claim to be appealing to reason, and yet the conclusion of their, quote, reasoning is the conclusion they had previously decided upon and were reasoning toward. Decide what you believe and then find the evidence to support it. So reason is something that is fallible as well. Therefore, if we can never know anything for certain, we may as well suspend our judgment. Stop arguing over what can never be settled. And we should then try to find a little peace and tranquility in life. That tranquility he called ataraxia. It is important to note that although we cannot know anything for certain, we can know many things well enough to get by. So, for instance, the sun may or may not rise tomorrow, but the odds are really good that it will. And what use would it serve to worry about it anyway? Now, if no system is ultimately supportable, then for the sake of peace, the best approach is just to adopt whatever system is prevalent in your neck of the woods. And isn't this what we do anyway? Why are you a Democrat or a Republican, a conservative or a liberal, a Christian, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Jew? It's because that was what you grew up with. You adopted the thinking and the religion of your family. If you are an American, it is not because of anything that you have done, but simply because 
You were born in America. So we take on whatever the norms are around us. Pyrrho, for instance, lived out his life worshiping the gods of Elis, even though he would certainly acknowledge that there was no more likely of their reality than of any other god, or no gods at all. So there are many things that a skeptic might accept for convenience, even though there is no ultimate proof. Now, although this skepticism at first glance may sound positive, there is another side to this. Let me read you something from a student, Annie Lamb. Here's her quote. Using Pirro's reasoning, slavery would still exist today in America because black Americans should accept their role in life as chattel in order to preserve the peace in the community. Most societies organize themselves into hierarchical systems. Thus, those groups of individuals who are lower on the hierarchy typically experience oppression or, in some extreme examples, may even be dehumanized or brutalized. For this reason, arguments and debates should occur as opposed to being discouraged, as advocated by Pirro. It is only with the free and respectful exchange of ideas that individuals can develop their personal values and beliefs in an educated manner. If we sacrifice this exchange in order to acquire ataraxia, we also sacrifice our ability to develop a genuine self, because self-reflection, the judgment of the self and others, is not encouraged. Later skeptics became prevalent among the students in Plato's academy. One in particular, Carnades of Cyrene, circa 214 to 129 BC, was notorious for arguing one side of an issue one day, and then the next day arguing the opposite side of the issue. He said, quote, There is absolutely no criterion for truth. For reason, senses, ideas, or whatever else may exist are all deceptive. Stoicism The founder of Stoicism is Zeno of Citium, 333-262 BC. Citium was a city in Cyprus. And Zeno may have been Phoenician or part Phoenician. He certainly was a student of the Cynics, but was also influenced by Socrates. His philosophy was similar to that of Antisthenes, but it was tempered by reason. So basically, he believed in being virtuous and that virtue was a matter of submitting to God's will. Now, as usual for the Greeks who postulated a single God, Zeno did not strongly differentiate God from nature. So another way of putting it is we should live in accordance with nature. Zeno's school got its name from the painted porch in Athens, where Zeno studied. Walking up and down the hallways, he lectured his students on the value of apatheia, the absence of passion. By passion, Zeno meant uncontrolled emotion or physical desire. Only by taking this attitude, he felt, could we develop wisdom and the ability to apply it. This idea is something not too different from the Buddhist idea 
of non-attachment. Let no one break your will, he said. Man conquers the world by conquering himself. Start by developing an indifference to pleasure and pain through meditation. Wisdom occurs when reason controls passion. Evil occurs when passions control us. Another aspect of Stoicism is its belief in the development of a universal state in which all men were brothers. The Stoics believed in certain, quote, natural rights, a concept which we wouldn't see again until the 18th century in a document that declares that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. The Stoics also believed in the right to commit suicide, an important part of Roman cultural tradition. The best presentation of Stoicism is by the Greek slave Epictetus, 50 to 138 AD, who wrote during the Roman era. There is also a little book, Meditations, written by the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius, 121 to 180 AD. A quote from Epictetus, quote, Only the educated are free. Epicureanism The gods are not to be feared. Death cannot be felt. The good can be won. All that we dread can be conquered. Epicurus. Epicurus, 341 to 270 BC, was born on the island of Samos in Ionia. At age 19, Epicurus went to Athens to study at the academy. It seemed, though, that he liked the philosophy of Democritus better. The school that Epicurus founded was particularly egalitarian, accepting both women and slaves. Epicurus, it is said, wrote 300 books, and sadly, only fragments of these books survive. Epicurus had little patience with religion, which he considered a form of ignorance. He was particularly eager to help people lose their fear of the gods. He did, however, also say that the gods existed, although they lived far away in space somewhere and had little or nothing to do with people on earth. Atheism, you see, was still illegal in Athens. One of the most persistent issues concerning belief in God is the problem of evil and Epicurus's argument still holds up. It goes like this. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? If so, then he is not all-powerful or omnipotent. Is God able to prevent evil, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then why evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? Epicurus felt that it was useless to argue over metaphysics, that there was no such thing as a soul that lived on after death, 
and that we arrived at our present conditions by means of evolution, and that we had a quality called free will. Now, we can almost see a modern materialism and empiricism here. All things, including our minds, are made of atoms and follow natural laws. All knowledge comes from the senses. Thoughts and memories are nothing but weak sensations. Virtue, for Epicurus, was the means to an end. Now, that end is happiness. It's good to feel pleasure, and it's good to avoid pain. But one needs to apply reason in life. Sometimes pain is necessary in order to gain happiness. At other times, pleasure leads to more suffering than it's worth. And there are levels of pain and pleasure, smaller and greater happinesses. Friendship, for example, is rated as one of the highest pleasures. Quote, a sage loves his friends as he loves himself, said Epicurus. And, quote, it is better to give than to receive. And, quote, it is not possible to live pleasantly without living prudently, honorably, and justly nor to live prudently, honorably, and justly without living pleasantly. All of this really reminds one of Benjamin Franklin. Well, society is seen as necessary because it protects us from injustice. Now, this foreshadows utilitarianism by suggesting that a society should be arranged to provide the greatest happiness to the greatest number. The ultimate happiness, though, is peace. And he borrows Pyrrho's word for tranquility, ataraxia. His motto was, live unobtrusively. We might update that and say, live simply. And so, Epicurus may be considered the first true humanist, as witnessed by this quote, quote, philosophy is an activity that uses reasoning and rigorous argument to promote human flourishing. Now note the practical similarities between Stoicism and Epicureanism, despite their theoretical differences. Both were popular in the Roman era, Stoicism in Rome's early, more vigorous years and continuing among the rank and file of Roman citizenry, and Epicureanism, and to some extent even Hedonism, behind closed doors, especially at the highest levels of the empire. Alexander the Great introduced what is called the Hellenistic period of history. His empire brought Greek ideas, art, language, habits to the world, as far east as India and as far south as Egypt. But with the death of Alexander the Great at age 33, the empire began to come apart. His generals dividing it among themselves, and incompletely conquered nations reasserting their independence. And a new people stood in the wings to take over the dominance in the Mediterranean, the Romans. And yet the influence of the Greeks would outlast the empire of Alexander, its collapse, and even the Romans. But for now, the world had become a different place, a place of large powers maneuvering among themselves, centralizing authorities, just like those in Asia. 
huge trading and marketing conglomerates tightly tied to those authorities. Not quite the place for individualistic thinking and observation. If you'd like to learn more about Epicureanism, perhaps the best summary of Epicurean philosophy is the epic poem On the Nature of Things by Roman Lucretius, 95 to 52 BC. Epictetus, Selections from the Enchiridion. Some things are in our control, and others are not. Things in our control are opinion, pursuit, desire, and aversion, and in a word, whatever are our own actions. Things not in our control are body, property, our reputation, and in one word, whatever are not of our own actions. Remember that following desire promises the attainment of that of which you are desirous, and aversion promises the avoiding that to which you are averse. However, he who fails to obtain the object of his desire is disappointed, and he who incurs the object of his aversion wretched. If, then, you confine your aversion to those objects only which are contrary to the natural use of your faculties, which you have in your own control, you will never incur anything to which you are averse. But if you are averse to sickness, or death, or poverty, you will be wretched. Remove aversion, then, from all things that are not in our control, and transfer it to things contrary to the nature of what is in our control. But, for the present, totally suppress desire. For if you desire any of the things which are not in your own control, you must necessarily be disappointed. And of those which are, and which it would be laudable to desire, nothing is yet in your possession. Use only the appropriate actions of pursuit and avoidance, and even these lightly, with gentleness and reservation. Men are disturbed not by things, but by the principles and notions which they form concerning things. Death, for instance, is not terrible, else it would have appeared so to Socrates. But the terror consists in our notion of death that is terrible. When, therefore, we are hindered, or disturbed, or grieved, let us never attribute it to others, but to ourselves, that is, to our own principles. An uninstructed person will lay the fault of his own bad condition upon others. Someone just starting instruction will lay the fault on himself. Someone who is perfectly instructed will place blame neither on others nor on himself. Don't demand that things happen as you wish, but wish that they happen as they do happen, and you will go on well. 
Never say of anything, I have lost it. But instead, I have returned it. Is your child dead? He is returned. Is your wife dead? She is returned. Is your estate taken away? Well, and is it not likewise returned? But he who took it away is a bad man. What difference is it to you who the giver assigns to take it back? While he gives it to you to possess, take care of it. But don't view it as your own, just as travelers view a hotel. If you have an earnest desire of attaining to philosophy, prepare yourself from the very first to be laughed at, to be sneered at by the multitude, to hear them say, he is returned to us a philosopher all at once, and whence this supercilious look. Now, for your part, don't have a supercilious look, indeed. But keep steadily to those things which appear best to you, as one appointed by God to this station. For remember that if you adhere to the same point, those very persons who at first ridiculed will afterwards admire you. But if you are conquered by them, you will incur a double ridicule. When any person harms you or speaks badly of you, remember that he acts or speaks from a supposition of its being his duty. Now, it is not possible that he should follow what appears right to you, but only what appears right to himself. Therefore, if he judges from a wrong appearance, he is the person hurt, since he too is the person deceived. For if anyone should suppose a true proposition to be false, the proposition is not hurt, but he who is deceived about it. Setting out then from these principles, you will meekly bear a person who reviles you, for you will say upon every occasion, it seemed so to him. If anyone tells you that such a person speaks ill of you, don't make excuses about what is said of you, but instead answer, he does not know my other faults, else he would not have mentioned only these. These reasonings are unconnected. I am richer than you, therefore I am better than you. I am more eloquent than you, therefore I am better than you. The connection, rather, is this. I am richer than you, therefore my property is greater than yours. I am more eloquent than you, therefore my style is better than yours. But you, after all, are neither property nor style. The condition and characteristic of a vulgar person is that he never expects either benefit or hurt from himself, but only from externals. The condition and characteristic of a philosopher is that he expects all hurt and benefit from himself. The marks of a proficient are that he censures no one, praises no one, blames no one, accuses no one, 
says nothing concerning himself as being anybody or knowing anything. When he is, in any instance, hindered or restrained, he accuses himself. And if he is praised, he secretly laughs at the person who praises him. And if he is censured, he makes no defense. But he goes about with the caution of sick or injured people, dreading to move anything that is set right before it is perfectly fixed. He suppresses all desire in himself. He transfers his aversion to those things only which thwart the proper use of our own faculty of choice. The exertion of his active powers toward anything is very gentle. If he appears stupid or ignorant, he does not care. And, in a word, he watches himself as an enemy and one in ambush.